This is Paul. This is session six on our church history as we're talking about the Trail of Blood. We're going to be talking about from the time of the death of the apostles, this early session, it's called the it's pre-Nicene church age or anti-Nicene church age. In these first three centuries, uh, Christianity was placed under really difficult situations, and they displayed such moral power, they displayed such victory, even in giving their lives, that they won the world over. Their spiritual weapons were uh, something that the world had no idea how to deal with because they were strong in the Lord. And it was until the reign of Constantine that uh, Christianity became legal all of that time before it was illegal. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the difficulties and the bad side of that as well as the positive effect. And uh, But what we're really interested in is in this early 100 to 150, 200 years, what happened? The Jews, of course, had been slaughtered and dispersed. Remember, Israel had been taken over, and Titus came in in AD 70, destroyed the temple, and uh, we know the story of uh, what happened at Masada and some of those other aspects, how the Jews were then carried off into all different portions of the world and the Roman Empire. And so, the Jews hated the Christians because... Christianity said that we are born out of Judaism, that we've come from that, and uses the Old Testament, uh, which they considered their Bible, of course, to be our part of our writings and part of Christians' uh, writings, and we used those prophecies. But it was in spite of these extraordinary difficulties that Christianity broke through and really met deeper needs. That's why they were found in every walk of life. Christians had permeated all of life. Now, we're going to deal with certain church fathers today, some men that are called church fathers, and they are men like Justin, who is known as Justin Martyr because of the way that he gave his life, Irenaeus, uh, uh, Clement, Origen, Tertullian, Cyprian, these were just some of them. That's not by far not all of them. But all of them excelled in culture, in their talents, in their understanding to their heathen contemporaries. They were by far and large. We have a lot of writings of Tertullian, and Tertullian was a Montanist. We're going to talk about that, and we have our Montanist here who began... Uh, Montan started, I think, around 158. The Montanist uh, movement began in North Africa primarily. Tertullian was a Montanist, and I'll explain why 
they became known like that and uh, as we go through a little bit. The early Christians, their moral uprightness, their method of, of life, and even though many of them were uh, sent to catacombs and many of them had to hide and were displaced, still many of them were even in government positions, from, and all the way down to tanners and uh, simple, simple positions. And so all of these were known, uh, plenty laments and plenty the junior, that in Asia Minor, men of every rank go over to the Christians. Tertullian asserts that the tenth part of Carthage was among, among them senators and ladies of the noblest descent and the nearest relatives of the proconsul of Africa professed Christianity. And so numerous of these early church fathers in this early second century just excelled and they were well known and well written and understood. It's interesting because men like Tertullian uh, did not use the Latin, he used the Greek he went back to make sure that uh, he was reading original scriptures, that he was reading the various texts that Christ had given and inspired men. And Tertullian, in his apology, and by the way, Tertullian writes the first apologetics textbook for Christians. And so many, many things become uh, systematically laid out now because of Tertullian. Things like the doctrine of God. How do we know who God is? How do we understand something about God? How do we understand Jesus Christ as being God and flesh all in one? How do we understand the Holy Spirit? How do we understand the nature of the church? How do we understand baptism, uh, the Lord's Supper? How do we understand all of the teachings of Christ? And he laid those out systematically so that we have them available for us today. Well, he says, we are a people of yesterday, and yet we have filled every place belonging to you, city, islands, castles, towns, assemblies, your very camp, your tribes, companies, palace, senate, and forum. We leave you your temples only. We can count your armies. Our numbers in a single province will be greater. All of these facts expose the injustice that was being done to the Christians repeatedly because of skeptics, because of those that hated the early Christians. And so they were degraded and mocked and said, well, you are the dregs of society, you're beggars, you're slaves. And it's true that many of the beggars and slaves did become Christians. But the causes of the success, and I think this is a, a critical thing that we could look at in our day and age, the chief positive cause for the rapid and ultimate victory of Christianity was its intrinsic worth. It meets the needs of the life. That universal salvation, in other words, Salvation is available to any that would receive it. Salvation was available to any that Christ died for all men. And he, he proves himself to every believing heart 
to be the Savior that gives eternal life, that saves us from sin. There has never been any other quite like him. And Christianity was found in all classes, all conditions, all relations among men. And the self-evidencing power of its doctrines that led people to live a pure life, that led them to submit to the authorities willingly. They never rebelled. They weren't people of rebellion. And this also elevated women now, and, and home life was elevated uh, to a, a beautiful place. And the effects of the heart and the life, all of these things, the brotherly love, the taking care of one another, the beneficiary, bene, uh, benevolence, benevolence, I'll get my words out, and of course, the triumphant death of the confessors that made a huge impact upon the lives of people. Well, there's moral and spiritual testimony that adds to the outward proof that these people were of divine origin. They recognized that the churches where they were had their origin in the church which Jesus established on the seashore of Galilee. That's one of the things that we always find, that they believed that they had apostolic origin, that they came from the original church. And there are statements by uh, Quadratus, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Origen, and others, that their preaching was powerful because they said that they could stand on the Old Testament prophecies. They could stand on the Old Testament, and they saw the conversion of heathens as the heathens first learned, look how Christ fulfilled all of these things that had been said seven, eight thousand years before. That was just not uh, by any means absent from uh, uh, only the hand of God could do that. Well, particularly favorable to the early Christians was that Rome had such a large empire and you could speak Latin, you could speak Greek, and all of the people after Alexander the Great came in, Hellenization, and they taught the people Greek, so you had common language. You could go from country to country. The Romans built the roads, and so they could go out to all of these different places and easily access people and then have a common language. That meant uh, a, a massive amount that helped in the spread. That's why I believe that Christ came in the fullness of time, at the exact time, so that the spread of the gospel would go like never before. We're living in a day and age similar like that, that we have great opportunities for transportation. We have translating materials. It's just a wonderful day and age that we live and that we have the same opportunities to carry the gospel. Well, in contrast, the Roman Empire is falling apart. The moral decay, there is just nothing. Judaism had uh, wandered, it was restless, it was, uh, they were having to really reform and establish other synagogues, and, and they had gone, undergone such persecution. But 
heathenism was the way of the world. Just live the, any way that you want. And it caused an inward rottenness in the Roman Empire. And so that decay, and it was an inevitable decay, that Grecian science couldn't take care of. They had lost their energy. They had lost their empire. The Roman Empire rested only on the power of the sword and the temporal interest. But now the moral bonds of society were, as they were falling apart, Christians were seen. Oh, they're different. They're pure. Look at their lives. Look at their families. They'll stand for what is right. And it was as the result of that kind of testimony, seeing the lives, how they had been changed, that made it a religion for the people because their lives were radically changed because of knowing Christ. It was a living religion. It was present. It was future. And so it had great draw. Gibbon, in his church history, or excuse me, in his history of the fall of the Roman Empire, his famous 15th chapter traces the rapid progress of Christianity in the Roman uh, Roman Empire. And he says that there are five causes. The five causes was, number one, the zeal of the early Christians. The belief in future rewards and punishment. The power that Christ had in the miracles. The pure morals of the Christians. And the individual, the, what he calls the compact church organization. In other words, each church was independent, was local, and didn't have to rely upon some head office to run things. And so by these causes, are they are themselves the effect that Gibbon says that it spread the divine truth of Christianity. And the, of course, we understand it was the perfection of, the, of Christ's teachings, Christ's example. We understand what Gibbon didn't understand as to why these spread so greatly. However, something begins to haunt the early churches, and it is something called baptismal regeneration. Remember, Satan works in religion. He works to lead men astray. And after all, if baptism is a good thing, if baptism shows the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, enlightening us, what the world can't see, so that now we are likened, that we've been buried with him in baptism and risen to walk in the newness of life. If that's a good thing, then we should baptize everyone. And then they began to teach that baptism was essential to salvation. Baptism was an essential element of salvation rather than being a result of, a witness of salvation. That teaching really began to turn because now salvation is no longer free by itself. It's something else that you can do. And the scripture very clearly says that it is not of works, and baptism would be a work. It's not of works lest any man should boast. And over and over the scripture talks about that. And the first protest 
and separation <clears throat> came because of this growing uh, uh, corruption was by a man by the name of Montanus. He was from Phrygia, and about the year 156 AD, he began to really propose that, wait a minute, you, baptism doesn't save you, and we've got to remove ourselves from that. As the result of baptismal regeneration, that baptism saves you, then they got the idea that all we have to do is baptize everyone, baptize babies. And so eventually, infant baptism grows out of it. We're going to spend some time and talk about a man by the name of Augustine, and he was not the originator of that, but he does, he's probably one of the biggest proponents for infant baptism. Prior to this, the church never knew of infant baptism. Now, some historians will say, oh, you can talk, look at Origen, you can look at Tertullian, you can look at uh, 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 Justin Martyr. Now, they do talk about young people, children that understood and were baptized, but not infants. I'll give you an example. My nine-year-old granddaughter came to understand what it was to be born again, and she was baptized with a beautiful testimony. My kids, when they were young, they understood that they needed Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. They accepted him and then later were baptized. And so we'll find examples where there are children, young people, that do understand that they need Christ as Savior, are baptized, and then uh, follow the Lord their whole life. But that's far different from baptism saving you and baptizing infants that have no idea. You never find in Scripture anywhere that infants were baptized or that babies were baptized or that even toddlers were baptized. They were always older and of the age of understanding because everywhere it talks about they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's an important thing. We have today a, a very sad thing that some will say that baptism now is essential to getting the Holy Spirit, and that is just not so. The Holy Spirit is given freely when you accept Jesus Christ. He comes and he indwells. He is a part of you. Without that, now you begin to have church salvation. Watch out, because that's where that whole idea of baptismal regeneration leads you. Now it's a church salvation, and it's not salvation in Christ and in Him alone. So that's really where they begin to separate, and they began known as Montanus, those that followed the teachings of Montanus and began to uh, disregard baptismal regeneration. Baptism did not save. And Tertullian was probably one of the strongest and best-known Montanists of that day and age. Origen, uh, others also very boldly spoke out and made sure that that teaching was understood. But that's the first corruption, because remember, Satan is in the business of religion, and if he can get you to think that you have to do something, then it's no longer in Christ and in him alone. It takes away from the work of Christ. It detracts, and that's something that Satan is always going to do, because now a little bit of error begins to lead you way off 
off to the side and you miss the mark. Well, it's important because the contention arose so strongly that then the question of discipline comes in. And they began, the Montanists began to say, why are you churches allowing immorality in your churches? Why are you not practicing church discipline? And so these were the two issues that really began to separate Christians. But understand this, two critical things that have always been found, and we're going to find all kinds of uh, evidences and beliefs that link all of these churches and all of these peoples together back to the time of Christ, but they believed purity of life, purity of the Christian life, that you must be pure. They believe in apostolic succession. In other words, that they had come from those early churches that the apostles established with the authority of Jesus Christ, that they ultimately came from that church at Jerusalem and then went into all of the world. Those two things were some of the first landmarks that they began to show. And of course, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the belief in Christ, all of these things begin to be laid out systematically and all of the true churches have believed and held to those very same doctrines from the time of Christ to this very day. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That we know that today we have churches that have come from that very church in Jerusalem because Christ said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. All right, uh, we'll talk more about Tertullian. We'll talk more about Origen, but I really want to get into some of the things that led up to the Council of Nicaea and Gregory the Great. We're going to see uh, some different aspects on that, and I think that's an important uh, lesson for us as we talk about, as we're getting right into that Council of Nicaea, and that's a critical point and a turning point for the early churches. Thanks. I hope you enjoy this. Uh, hope I didn't bore you. And take care. We will see you again soon. Lord bless.